0: Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen is a Harvard-educated theologian, culture activist, educator and creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School. For years you headed the counselling team of Canada's largest home-based palliative care programme and you were assistant professor at a prominent medical school. Working with hundreds of dying people and their families, caregivers, nurses, doctors and social workers, you encountered the deep death phobia and grief illiteracy that exists in the West. This motivated you to redefine what it means to live and die well. You're the author of several books, including How It All Could Be, Money and the Soul's Desires, the award-winning Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. You're also the subject of the National Film Board of Canada documentary, Grief Walker, a lyrical, poetic portrait of your work with dying people. Most recently, you have been performing your Nights of Grief and Mystery Tour, a rich and powerfully nuanced evening woven together by deep storytelling, wandering, and music to sold out venues across three continents. Stephen, I'm truly honored to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> Boy, a that's, a, that's a list. <laughs> it's quite an introduction. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I, I said to you, just Beforehand, I mean, I've watched uh, many of your interviews, and uh, I've been looking at a lot of your stuff, and you, you, I mean, you, you certainly appear to have quite a fascinating story.
1: Well, I've been interested in it.:
0: <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to mix things up a little bit for this interview. Um, I thought for the first question, I would ask you a slightly obscure one, okay. uh, which is, if you were in my seat, what would you ask you? Or or maybe to put it another way, what's a question that you're never asked that you wish that you were?
1: Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> well, what I do in interviews uh, is I try to, I would say elevate and elaborate the question and the answer, and I tend to answer the, the question that they should have asked me, but didn't quite yes. get to. You know? you, yeah, I've noticed you doing that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and it's not trickery, it's really it's coming to an understanding that, you know, somebody stumbles across this, what we're doing right now. And you have the extraordinary privilege of materializing unannounced uh, in, in the middle of somebody's life, you know. I really try to carry myself with that sense of, of privilege about it. Well, it's a burdensome thing as well because, um, you know, you don't get a second chance to do it. So, so that's why I answer the way I do. Uh-huh. In, in in hopes that there could be some use, you know, for what we come up with. But you've got me on this thing, because uh, it's very early uh, for me. And I had a long show last night. Yes. And I was up to the wee hours, because your town doesn't like to go to sleep, I notice. <laughs> um, I might have to defer on this one. Okay. If you don't mind. No, not at all. But it's, it's, uh, it's a good curveball, and I'm wide awake now. <laughs> okay. Got your attention. (laughs) Very good, very
0: good. Um, uh, You know, one of the things that uh, is is almost unnoticeable, apart from the way that you turn up, the way that you present yourself, is the way in which you communicate. You do so with, uh, you know, such precision, and so you you do so so impeccably. Um, Thank you. What, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, what is the reason for you doing so? So, cause a lot of people are quite
1: flippant or quite yeah. um, quite loose with their Ironic words. Ironic and so on. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, it's certainly partly what I just told you a second ago. And, you know, I, I was, from a young age, I was very compromised in my breathing and still am. And there's some connection between not being able to breathe and holding dear the capacity to speak in those times when I can breathe well. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I've never thought of this, but I'll bet anything these two are connected from a very early age. And then I was lucky enough to um, have an undeclared apprenticeship with, a, with an old black man who was a storyteller in my very early twenties. And he, he was phosphorescent when he spoke and constantly. And I think something happened, you know, my exposure to him, he's a thief, you know, and he stole from me two things, which everybody in their 20s should be victims of this thievery. One, he took from me my ability to proceed as if I'd never seen the real thing in a human being. Uh, and because of that, his example held me to a, almost a tyrannous standard, though there was no instruction, uh, you know, if he were to hear me say this, he'd probably s- say, "Well, I'm glad you are paying attention because, because he never said it." Okay. You know, it was by sheer by example over a seven-year period, off and on. And um, and then I, I love the sound, you know. English, the English language is maligned largely by its own practitioners, which is a wicked mm-hmm. chicanery that we perform on the language constantly, you know. Mm-hmm. And then in the mouths of politicians and. Pitch men and hype artists and doomsdayists and all the rest. The language suffers abominably as a result and I I Consider English to be an extraordinary thing, but you have to investigate it because its current incarnations are withered and um, milked dry Mm -hmm. and uh, so on so etymology has become a huge part of my school for example Mm -hmm. and and the writing that I do in the last two books in particular I take, I take, I feel a literary responsibility, not an idea driven responsibility, really. Mm. Uh, All of this combines with whatever, you know, capacity I have, but I've worked on it a lot, I think. Yeah. And then finally, when I was with dying people, you know, and they're utterly Uh. hamstrung with a kind of contemporary language wherein the realities of what's happening to them. Are non-existent. I mean they're they're full of euphemism and and, and gauze and gas, you know, and Mm -hmm. and they speak about their own dying in a way where the dying, the realities of the dying are the first casualty of the way they're speaking about it. And I saw that early on and that turned into what my real job description was when I was in the death trade. To see if I could craft a language that dying people would recognize they're dying in, Mm. frankly. I Mm -hmm. thought it was a deeper moral responsibility that I had to them. And so that's probably where, you know, the greatest focus. I mean, I was predisposed to it, Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't. Out of the womb, close to Mm -hmm. it, I suspect. I think my mother read to me in the womb and thereafter for certain. And I always had the sound of story-ness. You know, I don't really have a, a hypothetical uh, manner, but I have a, a narrative manner, which is partly the sound, you know, mm. and, it, and then it's partly, I, I think the human memory is activated and deepened and ennobled by stories, not, not concepts. And so, you know, it, it happens all the time in your work here. You, you're trying to remember how the story goes. You just say something, and the something in a mycelial fashion starts to insinuate the story that you can't quite recall, and you speak your way into it, Mm -hmm. which you can Mm -hmm. never do with an idea. How does that idea go? (laughs) Nothing happens, but the story lopes, and as it does, it brings you. So it's, I mean, it's a thrill, Mm -hmm. but it's also a responsibility. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. You you touched upon you know, your, your work obviously with, with dying people. I mean, how do you possibly go about communicating to somebody the fact, or, or, or their families, the fact that they are actually dying?
1: The fact or the least of it. The truth of the matter is, they'd already been communicated to at that level by the time I met any of them. Mm. But if you imagine that the reality of one's dying is a matter of fact, this is where the deep misapprehension occurs. Because I can tell you that people, here's a very good example. You mentioned the film Grief Walker. Mm -hmm. So the first lady uh, who appears in the film, you would have no guess that she's a a terminal cancer patient. She's very well put together and she's in a good um, state when the filming is happening. I asked her, what's your understanding of what's happening to you? This is literally what she said. Now, bear in mind, there's cameras. She knows why I'm here. Why she's the subject, of, one of the subjects in the film, what the film's about. She said, I hope I have this right. That's the first thing out of her mouth. And the next thing she says is, I have terminal cancer, which means someday cancer will come and take my life. Now, the second part of it weeps prejudice and, 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 and a kind of low grade terror. Cancer's coming like a predator in the night Mm -hmm. to steal from her. Something that otherwise should be an eternal possession of hers. That's in there. Mm -hmm. But the first part, I hope I have this right. I mean, how could you have it wrong? If dying were a piece of information, she couldn't possibly have it wrong. But if it's a whole person, calamitous, um, overturning of your understanding of life, I guess you could have it wrong. Mm -hmm. And inadvertently, that's what she was signaling Mm -hmm. that up until now, she's trafficked in it as if it were like a monopoly board, you know, and it's not real Mm. and it's just hopscotching along and appointments and, and, you know, treatments and and decisions and that's it. Mm -hmm. But that's virtually none of it. But of course people cling to that because it's a place they can easily drop into, and and then they get reams of information. Then they go home and do all that thing, and they they can sp- speak doctor with the doctors, mm-hmm. but they can't talk human with the humans. Yeah. And yeah. most of it, the, and then they're adrift on a raft of information that's coming, log by log. It's coming unglued mm-hmm. uh, as the storm rises. You see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like the the premise of this question is actually flawed, but based on having listened to you speak, I think that I'm correct in in the way in which I say it, but we'll find out. Okay. (laughs) What does a good death look like?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the beauty of this question is that I get to articulate it uh, from its absence, not its presence, because that was the order of the day. I can tell you what it looks like when it doesn't happen. And from that, you can get a sense of the missingness of something and its shape and its nuance, yeah? So every bad death I saw had a few salient features r- recognizable from one to the other. One, the, it was very inward turned. It was very self-possessed. It was deemed to be a possession of the self as well. Um, it, was a, it was a matter of personal style. It was um, something that I owned and that I could do with as I pleased mm-hmm. as it suited me from one literally one fitful minute to the next I was aided and abetted in this lunacy by the people around me who claimed to love me I know that's a strongly worded way of <laughs> saying it mm-hmm. but but the notion of love at a time like this um, became a, a sheet of Teflon a kind of firewall that the loved ones built around the dying person to see to it that their understanding of love never changed. That's their view of how you serve someone who's dying. That Mm -hmm. it's business as usual, as normal a life as possible. And the understanding of love becomes uh, a grim refusal to inhabit the time that you're actually in. I'll give you a little example. So um, the woman's about 28. And she has breast cancer and metastases to the lungs. And I'm walking up three flights of stairs and I know she's never coming down the stairs Mm. on her own power. It's amazing to walk towards someone you've never met wondering if they know about themselves this little sordid detail that you know about them. I knocked on the door and mom answered. She brought me in a little stiffly as was usual and came and sat down and... Mom's on the couch and there she is. And she has the prongs, the nasal prongs for the oxygen. And I asked her, what's her, just after introducing, like right away, what's your understanding of what's happening? She said, I understand I'm seriously ill, but really, I don't let let it be a big part of my life. And she looked at her mother, obviously, they basically rehearsed this orientation and the mother literally did this. That's my girl, she said to me with obvious pride. That's what I'm talking about. Anybody who saw that would s- see two well-adjusted people mm-hmm. who have turned a terminal diagnosis into a, an annoyance. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's madness. That's not love. That's co-conspiracy. See what I mean? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I. This, the purpose of the story is to challenge the notion that that's what maternal love does at a time like this. Mm-hmm maternal instinctive protectiveness, yes, sure, I'm a parent myself. But the notion that you will conspire with your child, to see to it that your child waits until the last gasp Mm -hmm. to come to this reality and to live it accordingly, this is, frankly, can't be defended. It can be understood, but it can't be defended as love. So even your, your understanding of love has to serve the God who has now come through the door, right? Mm-hmm. I don't say really to love the dying, but I would say that your understanding of love has, is dying too, mm-hmm. that's
0: what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned God and I was going to bring this up. I'll do so in, <clears throat> I'll sort of paraphrase a section from a, a well-known book, Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death uh speaks about the existential paradox how we're capable of pondering the infinite um almost making us feel as though we're like gods um but we're housed in these heart pumping breath gasping decaying bodies which uh you know we're 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 it's worms a fun and guy, for, it, i mean it's <laughs> it's a it's a yeah it's quite a shocking um yeah a shocking thing when you think about it yeah. what what does what he does wasn't doing well when he wrote the book by the way
1: okay but I'm sorry, please go. No, ahead.
0: Not, not at all. I want to um, ask you what the word God means to you.
1: It's a verb. <laughs> okay. That's what it means to me. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's become atrophied as a kind of celestial identity of some strange description, yeah? But I think like many, many of the treasured words in any language, they have their semantic origins as verbs. There, it's, it's something that's done. It's something that happens. It's not a kind of platonic ideal, un- disengaged and, and never changing, and et cetera, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's the first way. It's volatile, and it's not housebroken, right? And it's not that interested in your understanding in these matters. But you could say that probably it's in the nature of things godly to betray, whatever would betray, things godly. <laughs> it's um, people call that trickster. I don't think that's serious enough, or I don't think it brings all the tone into it. Mm-hmm. But you could say that you know the, fra- the, the John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. That's a formulation, okay. And there's a prou- it's a proof text. But if you visit the notion, God loves the world. This will help you with, with your misanthropy and you're imagining that God and humans are somehow implacable, uh, hostile neighbors, hmm. or at least the hostility runs in one direction, or the ignorance, to, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, to my mind, is there such a thing? Of course there is. There's such a things as God. Generally, I don't speak about God in the singular. For no other reason, no dogmatic reason. It's just that everybody's got that market cornered. Mm -hmm. So that we don't need one. But if you put, it's the same with the word beginning. You know, in the beginning, if you just put an S on it, your imagination goes, oh, more than one. More than one. That's godly, it (laughs) seems to me. That Mm -hmm. there's more than one beginning. And it seems godly that there's more than one God. And I'll bet anything that God came up with that. Let's, let's be a multifoliate rose. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's amazing listening to you speak. <coughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant.
1: It's just Canadian. It's a Canadian yeah. thing. <laughs> we're all like this. Uh, I wish that were the case.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think age intolerance exists
1: today? Hmm. Well, you know, I would prompt you to finish the question. Okay. <laughs> no, I'll finish it for you. Because sure. okay. Because I'm getting paid the big bucks here (laughs) right now. Well, you could say that why is there so much age intolerance among which sector of the population? Okay. Because that helps flesh out already the beginnings of the answer, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of self-hatred amongst older people. A tremendous amount of it, actually. Really? Oh, an utter refusal to inhabit the time of life that they're in. Largely because when they were In their 20s and 30s, which we're going back now to the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. In that time period, it was a famous aphorism to not trust anyone over 30. And apparently none of these kids imagined they'd ever be over 30, right? Because it was just Peter Pan and it was just... Anyhow, so of course, those of them who made it past and survived the LSD and the leaping off the cliffs thinking they could fly and whatever else it was and self-examination and primal screaming and could go on <laughs> um, eventually turn into seven-year-olds. And what was it about their imaginal life that whispered to them that this is a proper outcome? Demise and diminishment and being demeaned in some fashion. So, so the conspiracy is insane, frankly. Now you have a situation where people of that age group are insisting at being at their own wakes. And I hear this pretty r- routinely. And they imagine that I'm going to be their ally in this thing. And I said, You understand what wake means, don't you? Awake is a consequence, not a cause. Hmm. So how does a wake happen? Answer is you die. It's not really negotiable. Mm-hmm. So if you're there it's many things but it's not awake, certainly not your wake. And now we know why you want to be there. Because the truth of the matter is you do not trust the willingness or the capacity or the instinct of people younger than you to bear you in mind and bear you along. So now you're even instructing them in your own, um, I can't even think of the word they use anymore, but anyway you're (laughs) the story which is you. You mm-hmm. still want to write it. Mm-hmm. And you'll be doing it from the grave, probably. So so it's an act of fundamental mistrust which is deeply understandable because in the rupturous relation between the generations it's more than possible that young people will f- and continue do, to find older people to be like spent jet trash littering the landscape. No, literally, I mean I have to tell <laughs> you this. Mm. You know, given the age that you would appear to me to be, <laughs> that the darkness regarding the world that young people are in the process of inheriting now is unspeakably uh, thick, and um, I don't think it's possible to overstate the resentment. And I don't think older people are hip to this, to be honest. Mm. And when it comes out, um, it's mannered for ab- about ten seconds. And then you find young people howling into the the withered, recoiling face of someone who could easily be their grandmother, Mm -hmm. or even older. Mm -hmm. And you know, the propriety of that is obviously a challengeable thing, but the understandability of it, the sense of abject betrayal of people who took as long as they could and then retired from the fray, and left it to the young people to sort out, oh, pff, global warming. Just to throw one out there. Mm-hmm. And the sea of plastic in the Pacific yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and older people can't see the connection between the life that they lived, full of struggle as it may have been, and the world that they're passing over to young kids. They don't see it. Because they don't experience themselves personally as being on the take for most of their lifestyle lives Mm -hmm. but they were we were and we remain so this begins to answer the question about you know is it is it virtually toxic between the generations it's a big part of the nights of grief and mystery show Mm -hmm. I didn't start that way but it's become why because there's so many young kids that are coming to the show it's amazing you know and they're not coming for a rock and roll show, though they do get it, because that's the sensibility of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But what they really get is a lament in, in a, almost an Old Testament sort of fashion, a kind of stately, sorrowful testimony to h- how things are. And honestly, I look at young people and they seem secretly relieved that they're not being sold another solution, hmm. that they're not being sold anything, mm-hmm. that somebody's willing to sit alongside them and say, here's how, it's. this is what's come to pass. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> I took this quote from a, a source Um, but it does quote you. It says, Jenkinson believes that what modern people suffer from most is culture failure, amnesia of ancestry and deep family story, phantom or sham rites of passage, no instruction on how to live with each other or with the world around us or with our dead or with our history. Um, What do you think has been core to the
1: degradation of culture? Oh, Lord. Uh, Plato didn't help.
0: <laughs> that's a long time ago.
1: No, it isn't, actually. Well, but not that long. <laughs> not that long, because ideas <clears throat> don't age. Hmm. That's why they're not to be overly held in high regard. Because okay. ideas, like even the idea of God, mm-hmm. for example, doesn't get any age on it, it doesn't tarnish and wear as it properly should. So it's, it's mysteriously not of this world. And that's used as a compliment not of this world. But I find these things untrustworthy, you know. Mm -hmm. We have enough to contend with that's of this world without inviting kind of the Er Eric Von Daniken allegations, you know, about uh, where it all came from. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, speaking as a North American now, it's proper to limit my purview to that. Okay. We were founded by you folks. And when you came over, you left a lot behind. And you're inhabiting here what you left behind when you came over and turned into us. Okay. And you became supra-citizens of a non-existent something. I mean, it's, we have a province in Canada called Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. New Brunswick. Newfoundland, mm-hmm. just for starters. Mm. That tells you the trauma. I mean, the allegation is seeking a new life. Opportunity. The whole American thing. Mm. New England, for God's sake. There's nothing new about England. You, you you transplant it to the other side of the Atlantic. That doesn't make it new. And I've said in my school more than once, don't call it New England, folks. Because you lose the scent. Call it England again, now it's properly understood. Why, if you wanted a whole new everything, did you name every place you could with a name familiar from the old country? Mm -hmm. Just, just take that one. So what am I saying? I'm saying that, that North America is a European fantasy and it remains so. Founded by fantasy, um, driven, traumatized European people, okay? And the trauma was compounded by going because of what was left behind. And the principal loss amongst all the other ones, to my mind, is the cultural continuity that whispered to you what was to become of you after you died. Gone.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Melting pot and so on. No shared understanding of the fundaments of cultural life that give you your understanding of what life means. I have never heard this talked about in general cultural h- historical consideration, mm-hmm. you know. But there is such a thing as psychic trauma at the cultural level. Mm-hmm. And when you have a founding story that hides this from you and turns it into freedom fighters who the first thing they do when they get to the other side is to deny, deny that freedom to the people that they meet and even question whether or not they're human. And these are people allegedly seeking after a deeper running human life. That's not what those people do. Mm-hmm. No, no. So you begin to see. no. So it's a kind of compound fracture masquerading as a as a foundation story, as a creation story. It's terrifying when you start visiting it and this you know, I basically crafted a school that's fu- that's, that hovers around the question of what is the author- authorized history of America now? What's the unauthorized history mm. of America? The one mm. that nobody seems to want to cop to, which is clearly enunciating itself now with the kind of ringing dry of the resource base and so on. Mm. I mean, people who love, you know, their lives and love freedom and so they don't behave that way. Never did, though. Mm-hmm. See, so there's a lot to this stew. You can feel it, no? Yeah, and yeah. and with all of that, I would say to you something strange, which is we're probably older, more older European than you are. And what I mean by that is even though our accent doesn't sound like you at all, but our Europeanness stopped, freeze, framed. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. As a consequence of the middle passage. And it, and it didn't continue. Mm-hmm. And it didn't turn into something else. It kind of stopped and, and grew so unsure of itself it, it perched on a rock, you know, under a cloak for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. While you continue to develop what constitutes Europe today with all the chagrin that seems to be mm-hmm. in this part of the world now. None of it visits itself upon us and we fought in your wars and so on. Yeah, but then we left again and Here's the thing Do we think about you all the time? Do you think about us? From what I've seen never
0: That's quite fascinating.
1: Mm.
0: What an interesting perspective Mm. What's your what's your
1: ancestry Stephen? Well, I'm sitting in part of it, really? I imagine. Yeah. You know, these things are bad. I don't really want to do the Ancestry.ca thing, you know, the th- mouth swab and all that. Yeah. I would rather either, be have to say. informed by it at a subtler level. Okay. And clearly I am. Hmm. So I'll take this at face value. The first time I took a teaching gig in Ireland, which was a mad thing to do. I mean, you don't go to Ireland and talk if you're not from there. It's just... <laughs> As a matter of respect, you just don't do it. You know, don't go to Africa to dance. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, but there I was stupid. And, uh, and I'm standing at the front of the room. I'm just about to begin. And there's an old woman at the back of the room who yells something to me or at me or about me or all of that. And I couldn't quite make, I couldn't make out what she said because my ear wasn't tuned to the accent yet. So I asked her to repeat herself and she said, "Well," she said, Sure you're Irish. That's what she yelled from the back. Now, if this had happened at home in Canada, everyone would have glared at her like, drawing attention to yourself. Who do you think you are? Very English response. Not one person looked back at her. You know what they did? All the Irish people in the room. They leaned forward and looked at me even more intently (laughs) to see if they could see what she was seeing, you see. It was amazing. I never would have seen that at home. And I said to her, what makes you say that? And she said, well, like there was the most self-evident thing on the planet. She said, well, look at your head. So they, they just straight up claimed me right away because all the other people looked at each other after she said the head thing. They went, yeah, go on then. We figured you out. Go on. There's not many places in the world I could go, materialize in front of people like that. And somebody just goes like this, we'll be having you. Mm-hmm.
0: Mhm. And it was I mean it was absolutely
1: heartbreaking. You know that I'd lived that long with no sense of that whatsoever. And I I don't make it um like I don't I don't live there. I don't long after the place, but it is a kind of cardinal point in the compass of self-understanding that there are there is a people in this world who who more than imagine me, somehow remember me. See, that's the other half of what I was telling you about the, mm-hmm. the darkness, you see. That's there too, if people are willing to to recognize you, it's astounding. This across the generations, yeah. And a little bit in this part of the world too, I think, the other side of the Irish Sea there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there, as far back as anybody is willing to know, you know, at home, yeah.
0: That's, that's, that's so interesting.
1: Mm. <laughs> I'm going to start asking
0: you some of my, what I would, I suppose, call set questions. They're the ones that I tend to always ask in interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I suspect you might have issue with the way in which some of them are perhaps- Doesn't worded sound like, like me at all. <laughs> or their <laughs> intention, but okay. hopefully you can uh, you can see through that. Okay. What, what do you feel is your purpose
1: in life? Do I only get one? I I hope I have some choices in the matter. Okay. Well, um, you know part of this has to do with certain kind of native skills that seem to arise in you, but these things can be still born without remarkable encounters at very numinous times. I had those, so I was kind of ignited, you could say, as I went along. Mm -hmm. So whatever ability I had, was employed and God, I mean that's an unspeakable bounty when those things happen together. You don't know it at the time because you're callow and you're young, right? And you you claim to know yourself and things like this. Um, I'm in full possession of my assignment. I can say that with no equivocation. I don't own the thing, I don't command it, but I'm informed by it. I have a band. This is ludicrous. I'm not a give. I'm not a natural performing person. I'm I'm shy, and it's disfiguring to stand like I did last night here in Edinburgh, and and, and for two and a half hours proclaim, you know, but that's what happened, and it happens again, and I have a band who's willing. To do it with me, all of whom are professional musicians in their own right. Mm -hmm. How to understand? Call a thing nights of grief and mystery and imagine that people will pay to come Mm -hmm. when you're not saying no more grief, no more mystery, come on in. You're not saying that. So I lived long enough. I mean that's one thing that shouldn't be over overlooked, you know. Mm -hmm. I had, I was spared because there was a few times was to touch and go and I've seen the shore you know and it doesn't make me skillful at anything but it gives me a sense of urgency where it might be despair in others and and I treasure that urgency and so you know the, so the gigs over at 11 right and I'm not going back to the hotel man <laughs> and I find myself sitting in one of your bars here two o'clock in the morning <laughs> with about 15 young people <laughs> who just don't want to go home And I have the same feeling. (laughs) That's one of the reasons I'm here now, is that I get to sit with people younger than me. And they just want to know that the whole thing's not worthless. But you can't say it. But what did the old man say, Leonard Cohen? He said, and I lift my glass to the awful truth that you can't reveal to the ears of youth except to say it isn't worth a dime. And the whole damn place goes crazy twice. And it's once for the devil and it's once for Christ. And the boss don't like these dizzy heights. So we're busted in the blinding lights of closing time. And I think that's the time we're in. And the innkeeper is shutting the inn. And we have to leave. And it's not going to continue. And the order that we were born to will survive my lifetime if survive is a good word to describe something that shouldn't be there anymore, it may survive your lifetime. But sometime thereafter, the whole works will find its proper denouement. And I think the principal responsibility in a time like that is to witness the undoing of the thing. And I'm I'm probably an early... (laughs) Oh, man. Let's say I'm an early... Canary in that coal mine. And when I stop singing, it will be one of the little signs that the toxicity is gathered when the silence comes amongst the people willing to know it who are not addicted to solutions but are willing to be witnesses instead. When the witnesses stop speaking, that's probably close to the tumble. Mm-hmm. It's rather grim, eh, for so early in the morning, but <laughs> you asked me. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you this. So I'm in Phoenix, Arizona or somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm at a bookstore. It was crazy. <laughs> there's a lot of crystals in the bookstore. That's not good. Not my kind of place. It's like kryptonite for me. But anyway, that's where I was, and, and there's this guy in the front row, and he's just, he's just right like that. He doesn't even blink for two and a half hours. At the end, he comes up to me, and he says... I've been watching you very carefully, and I said, "No kidding." I noticed that, and he said, "I think I finally figured you out." I said, "Well, great." I had to come all the way to Phoenix to get figured out. What'd you come up with? And he said to me, "You're a prophet." That's the word he used. And he was he was said it without chagrin, and without irony. He said, "You, yeah, that's what you do." I can't disagree. <laughs> but I said don't tell anybody because it's not a well paying gig and the fringe benefits are really questionable. <laughs> so we'll just keep it between ourselves. But now I've told you so. That's what he said. You okay. know, I'm I can't disagree though. <laughs> How
0: would you like to be remembered? So what would you like your legacy? It's not
1: be? absolutely not up to me. Okay. I, I have no voice in that matter. Mm -hmm. You know, my voice is now Mm -hmm. and people will remember as they do what they do Mm -hmm. for their reasons according to the times and what of what I was able to come up with might constitute something useful. That's it. Mm. That's it. But I I'm gonna use a big word here. I trust the architecture of that Though I won't be a witness to its outcome. Mm -hmm. So even sitting here with you now is not me secretly trying to engineer th- the way by which I'll be officially recalled. You yes. No, yeah. it's just to contribute to it. And then people choose as they will. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It's not my business. I, on the other hand, remember. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be remembered. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. That's what you're hearing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope I've got time to shoehorn in this question, but Having witnessed so many deaths yourself, what kind of imprint does that leave on one's psyche?
1: It can utterly traumatize you, and it does many people. Mm -hmm. Or it can give you um, an implacably enhanced instinct for being alive. Mm. Because you, you have a glimpse of what not alive is not the content of it, but the kind of the goneness of it. And I have that all the time, so that has sent up this kind of little wild rose of longing inside me. and it, I'm going to say something that sounds very counterintuitively, hmm <laughs> that i I long for life now, having been exp- exposed to the death of so many fellow humans. Mm-hmm. we say, but you are alive. Well, why would you long for it? Well, there's the mystery. Mm-hmm. That me being alive doesn't extinguish my longing. Mm-hmm. It's t- extinguished most of my desires, I'll be honest with you, but not my longing, which is an entirely different order of kind of, uh, you know, emotive and, and existential life. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled about the deal in a general way. And I will, I will be aggrieved when you know the last mm-hmm. curtain i'm i'm not excited about it okay. and i don't trust people who say that to you yeah mm-hmm. you know I, I like this deal man i like sitting in this house with you this morning and <laughs> i like the <laughs> fact that alive. i'm getting in a, in a in a coach in 20 minutes and driving to bristol and got a show tomorrow night i love it mm-hmm. i love being alive but that's where my love comes from now Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From I'm five minutes to my midnight you see. <laughs> and it can be like this. Yeah, you don't have to go rancorous and Belligerent and with somebody screaming in your ear. do not go. What is it? Do not go quietly into that good night yeah, that Dylan Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no obligation to be kicking and screaming like an infant that you didn't get your way mm. Did you draw breath? Did you did you were you alive long enough to realize you were drawing breath? Then you're in the bonus round, man, <laughs> no matter how old you are. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not very tolerant in these matters, you can see.
0: <laughs> how do you define success?
1: <laughs> I, I don't. You know, I, I try to succeed. What does that mean? I don't know. I try to be faithful to what I've seen. You know, I, I try to remember. Um... You know, I, I try to remember to go home, to reacquire my farm status, to reintroduce myself to the animals. And, but I'm not a farmer anymore, because I'm out here too often, you know? So I've already had to let that go. So, so much for my dream for how it would be towards the end. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm mysteriously on the road. My good fortune has become my habit. I'm all for it. <laughs> I I'm, I'm really a child of fortune. I lived long enough to be born that way. Yeah. My mother wouldn't recognize what I just said, because it was a very hard time in the early days. Mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But um, there's no hero's journey here. There's nothing heroic, nothing exemplary. I just got a chance to be around the real thing when I was young, and I lost all my idle possibilities, and urgency became my responsibility. And then in the death trade, while the circle was, the circuitry was completed then. Mm -hmm. Because when I saw other people's demise, and saw the uh, belligerence with which they came to it, I saw my own, of course, many times. And this is um, this is not an affliction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you have to work though. Mm. You know, the the deal comes down to this: bless, work, repeat. <laughs> bless, work, repeat. Yeah.
0: Huh. I suspect you might have an issue with this question. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm.
1: I didn't receive it directly, but I read it. Okay. It was an interview with Leonard Cohen a long time ago. And they, they said to him, uh, you have a lot of aspiring writers and so on and musicians in touch with you. All the time, he said. And did they ask you for advice? He said, they do, frequently. He said, what do you tell them? And Cohen says to him, duck, <laughs> duck. duck, that's the advice I give. I don't know if I duck, but I take the understanding, you know, that there's no merit in being rigidly, like that bowsprit on the friggin' Titanic, you know, like that stupid movie thing. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) there's no merit in that. No, if you you can't like this, you'll be the early casualty of your own certainty, right? Mm -hmm. You have to cultivate the capacity for ambivalence, right? and not be obliged to collapse into a certain premature and indefensible certainty in the face of these contending possibilities of life, see? So, somewhere in there, the, the notion that you have no obligation to a unified field theory called yourself, I think that was very valuable. I don't think anybody ever said it to me, but I think I saw examples. I mean, the man I was with he never asked for permission, but he would on occasion, in a very profound way, ask for forgiveness. Mm. And that is a, that's a royal feast, if you get in on that as a young person, to see somebody roll that way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. If, if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what mm. would you say? I, I think I do all the time. Although the 20-year-old self has more to say is not so inclined inclined to listen, you know. So that's I probably wouldn't. I would say, oh, You again. God, you're so sure. You know, and of course people listening to this say, Are you kidding? Listen to how you talk? You don't go, I think, at the end of every sentence, or who knows, or <laughs> anything. That's true, I don't have those qualifiers. But this is me brailing my way towards what you're asking me about. The fact that I might sound sure of myself is, is an occupational hazard of being asked things. Because who wants to hear, I don't know, at the end of every thought? Come on. So is, is the certainty an act? It's not an act. It's, um, it's not an act any more than putting on shoes when it's cold out <laughs> is an act. Okay. Right? Yeah. It's a good idea. Uh huh. Okay, but they're not you. Yeah. And your certainties are, are just, they're useful. But then take them off already when they've outlived their their reasons, you see. Yeah. And underneath there there's not more certainty. underneath, underneath that is the unnecessity of certainty. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why?
1: I don't have any I'm not seduced by megalomania at all. Okay. Really and truly. I don't think that's a place humans should occupy. If I could change something in the world. It's, well look, but you, but you only have one place. You don't occupy the world, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so the notion that you can exercise some kind of grand vision and then accurate, no, no, no. no, Mm -hmm. No, all of your life ways are local, specific, particular, you know. And that's the only place you operate. Yep. Even sitting here with you now. That's all this is. So it's a kind of redundant question because it's the only place that any changing occurs anyway. You know. So I'm responsible, I guess, for five foot sevens worth of trouble. <laughs> that's all. And I try um. to inflect the trouble in some fashion so that it can... It can outgrow its its old habits and turn into an old person's um, mischievous uh, unwillingness to comply.
0: Okay, mm. well, yeah, I suppose your your influence can be, um, <sighs> you know, sort of exercised vicariously. <coughs> Through other people. So there's this kind of cliche quote, uh, be the change that you want to see in the world. Or, you know, the way in which you show up in life can have a ripple effect outwards. Does have. So you think there's there's
1: merit in that. Oh, listen. Excuse me. That's a little strong. Here's the thing. (laughs) We have this word awake in the English language, right? Everybody thinks they know what it means because we use it as the opposite of Mm sleep. Or if you're in a kind of enlightenment circles, But investigate the word and it will not betray you. It's very simple. It's an old English word. So the A in front functions differently than if it were a Greek or a Latin word. And in old English, it's a preposition basically. So it locates. Okay, that's the A. It means of or sort of pertaining to Mm -hmm. or constituent to, something like this. And then the root word wake, we use this word. Mm -hmm. It's a thing that you make when you go through water. It's the mm. thing that you make as a result of dying. It's very interesting that it's the same word for both of those things. You reassemble the word and the condition of being awake has nothing to do with ah. it means this, to be gathered into the web of consequence that emanated from everything you did and everything you didn't do and what you said, what you should have said but didn't and so and so and so. So it's not a recipe for being unfettered It's quite the opposite. It's to be tethered Mm. to your times and to the consequences that became the story that people remember you by, if they remember you Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. That's our responsibility, is to proceed bound to what binds us, if you could put it that way. Mm -hmm. And to fail to do so is sociopathic, to be self-initiating, Self concern is so that's sociopathic. It's extraordinarily hazardous to the general well-being. It's whatever's left of the general well-being after several generations of experimenting with, you know, self-development. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I think I might have to go.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, I just want to say, Stephen, a, a, an enormous thank you for uh, for for your wisdom, your insights. And uh, it's been an absolute honour and pleasure speaking with you. You're
1: very kind. These are mostly allegations (laughs) in lieu of the wisdom that I haven't managed yet. (laughs) Well. Cheers. Thank you so much, (laughs) Stu. Thank you, Steve.
0: Okay. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you at the next episode.